I, on your desk, leave you a nice coffee mug ring. Something to remember me by. Uh, that's true. Something you could tell the children about. Uh, yes, your Uncle Arrowhead's such an asshole. Look at this coffee ring he left on the nice table. He left rings on all the furniture so that we could remember him in times of trouble. <laughs> to know that no matter how bad it gets, it can always get worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how was your week, gentlemen? Hey. Yeah? Yeah, one of those. Uh-huh. Finished my garage, finally. Yeah? Yeah. We're going to need to lower that mic if that's how you're going to sit. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Hold on. No, yeah, no, just, I can yeah, do you can just... Yeah, okay. Yeah. We, know, we know how to do this. We can tie our own shoes and everything, Austin. Yeah. Most of the time, at least. This is a, a full-service podcast. Full-service, Full-service full podcast. And yeah. happy ending. We're going to have to edit, edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're recording right now? Uh, yeah. I record for a cold open. Yeah. Yeah. It also helps me test the mic levels. Um, I got my oven fixed this week. Oh, your oven? No more. Yeah. Remember no. that it had broken, tried to blow up? No yeah. more gas mm-hmm. explosion. I had to no. wait three weeks for that stupid part to come in. It took me all four minutes to put it in. Electrical is the way to go. With oven, yes. With um, yeah, I know what top, you're talking about. Mm, I like the gas. For cooking, yeah. yeah. Lots. Of, we, just, lots we have food. to get you some nice copper skillets. Mm, the only place I've ever seen that had uh, um, actual solid copper cookware is in Fredericksburg. It's called their their Kuchenladen. I have been there. Yeah, I, I love that store. There. And they have a full set of copper, solid copper cookware that I think, like just the frying pan about this big it's weighs, old, it's old as weighs like 15 pounds, if not more, solid copper. But just that one little frying pan is like, Fifteen hundred dollars or something yeah. like that. Yeah, it's solid copper. Yeah, solid copper. Copper's I know. expensive. Yeah, used to be cheap. Now it's expensive. Yeah, uh, Fredericksburg would be overpriced anyway. It's German, it's, right? Yeah, tourist town. Go speak to the Jewish people. They have what you want at half yes, the price. Exactly. <laughs> there are competitors. <laughs> <laughs> and hell, they may even finance it for you. Yes. <laughs> There's um. There, there are three stores next to each other. One guy is owned by an Englishman. One guy is owned by an Eng- by an Indian guy. One guy is owned by a Jewish guy. And you know, business is kind of difficult for everyone. And um, the British guy goes out and he puts up a sign: twenty five percent off everything. And um, the Indian guy looks at the sign and says, "Well, there's no bloody way I'm going to have this guy cut into my business." So he goes out there and he puts up a sign: fifty percent off everything. Jewish gentleman, he looks at this and he goes outside. So he decides, okay, this is a good time to put up a sign as well. He puts up a sign in front of his store, main entrance. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Oh, no, well, since, since 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 we are a, a Jew, a, a Jew, a Christian, and an atheist, walk into a bar. Those are the types of jokes we tell here. Yes, it? yes, yes. I just can't recall <laughs> any bar jokes at, at at the moment. So, you know, my grandmother listens to this show now when she while she's quilting apparently ah. and uh she said i said so what do you think of it and i'm nervous because you know i've dropped i've dropped some swear words on this mm-hmm. podcast before but if my grandma my grandmother's a smart woman she knows i will swear every now and then but secrets are being say. kept here you know <laughs> we keep that from her yes <laughs> there's so. some things you tell your grandmother and there are Sounds other things like... you don't tell your grandmother mm. Mm. 
So that's a big edit, <laughs> right? So I think I'm gonna have to raise the levels on Rusty's mic. Anyways, she's she goes. Is this better? Bring it just a little bit closer to you. And we might. Is this better? Yeah, that's much better. Oh, okay. Yeah. So uh, no, so I asked her, you know, what do you think of it? And she goes, well, I like it, you know, but I, I just, there's just one problem about it. And I said, and I said, okay, what is it? And she goes. Well, Christians don't go into bars. <laughs> <laughs> that, I didn't know well, that reminds me of the uh, a bit of wisdom. If you ever go fishing and you take a Mormon, always take two. Never take one by himself because he will drink all your beer. But if two Mormons are there, they'll watch each other. They're monitoring shit. That's, that's the same. I've heard that joke like in so many formats, but for Baptists usually. Well, you know, yeah. I, I always think you need to take a bunch of Christians and you go fishing because they'll make more fish for you, you know? Mm. Isn't that the narrative? We'll also turn water into wine. Well, that that's something I can get behind, really, you know. To show up with a straw, hey? <laughs> <laughs> I'll bring the water. <laughs> yeah. Bring my own pitcher. Got these jugs of water. Can you do something with them? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I've always, I, I've always been 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 fascinated with this idea. You know, did um, did Jesus do do a Jewish prayer and then turn the water into wine, or did he just you know snap his fingers, or he just said wine? You know, mm. never really thought about the uh, mechanics, mechanics of how you turn water of, into wine. I know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, never never really thought about that. I'm sure that there's a scholar out there that has. You know. I don't know. We should go look up Aquinas. He might have thought, amused about it. You want to give me the countdown, Aaron? He can't count. <laughs> <laughs> now I have to do it again because Rusty spoke. <laughs> 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 Welcome, everyone, to the fifth episode of our podcast, A Jew, a Christian, and an Atheist Walk Into a Bar. It is Sunday. It is Sunday, right? Yes, it is Sunday. Okay. Everything's blurring together. It is Sunday, June 28, 2020, and I am one of your hosts, Austin Lunyon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Rusty. Hello. And Erhard. Evening. So, gentlemen, we are... we. Yes, this is Sunday. Yes, is we Sun- are gentlemen. Yes, right. So, if if we're, if we're a little slow today, forgive us all. We're doing this kind of early. Just, uh, I woke up probably about twenty minutes ago. I don't know how long it's been. So hungover. Yeah. <laughs> Thoroughly broken. Hence oh, the sun- yeah. <laughs> I love the glasses, the sunglasses. What? Yeah, it's kind of like I feel like I'm in here if uh, Howard John, Stern. Yeah, or John Ooh. John Lennon, you know. Mm-hmm. A blue the, bandana today? Yep. He changed teams on us. No, no I, I thought really you were going to say Democrat. Democrat, because he's wearing blue. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. No, I've got a... Blue to you, sir. Really bad headache, and it's from the dust. 
Yeah. I, the oh, dust, the dust is here. in the air. You should put that over your mouth and your nose, not your head. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the, no. This is just to keep the light. So off my head. you know, it was interesting oh, about the dust, and this is like the one news thing I'm going to mention today. I found it fascinating last week. All the stories are saying, oh, the Sahara dust will give us beautiful sunsets, you know, with red and orange and things like that. And and it fertilizes the ground and stuff like that, all the benefits. And I told Leslie, I said, how long do you think it's going to be before they find something negative about this and they start printing that? And like two days later, all the stories started coming out. Oh, the dust will kill you. The dust will give you asthma and kill you, which for asthmatics, the dust can be really bad. That's true. But it was like all of a sudden, all these stories just started Pow, 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 does, pow. Does the dust have the correct um, visa information to mm. come to the United States? Mm. I would suspect so. Are they immigrating illegally? Well, no, I was waiting for a story is this, to say... Is this a call for a dome? Keep, I, out, the, <laughs> keep out the dust, you know? I was honestly, and I'm not... I, I was just thinking in my head, I'm waiting for a story to come up where they try to say that the dust has Ebola in it. That wouldn't surprise me at I'm all. I'm serious. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, I could, I could see a news article that says undisclosed scientific source says dust Some contains virus Ebola, or mm-hmm. bacteria, right from Africa yeah. that's going to kill us all. And I'm like, or know. or or the dust will worsen coronavirus outbreaks. Or here's a headline for you: the possibility of it cannot be ruled out. So, yeah. something, you know, just yeah. something see, along those I, lines. I love it when they do that. It's so polite and yet so vague at the same time. <laughs> yep. Just like the British. Just like the British, <laughs> yes. Polite yet vague. So, anyways, but we did not come today to uh, talk about the news. We kind of want to make a concerted effort to kind of stay away from it. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on. A lot of stuff that, you know, pisses me off, pisses both of you off, I'm sure, but we'll talk about that in another episode. I figure we wait about another two weeks, see how crazy it gets, and then we can talk about what happened in those, yes, those let's, two weeks. Yes, let, so. let's have some time pass over this so we can look at it from a historical perspective, yeah, or at least we, something close to it. We can title that The Aftermath. Ah, that's <laughs> true. So today we are going to be answering some questions from our viewers. We're finally getting questions in from people. Right? Yes. And um, one of the questions that I thought was fascinating was, and this came from a friend who talked to me in person who was listening to the podcast. I said, you know, this is the type of thing you should send in, encourage other people to comment on on things. And they they were kind of asking me, what does it take to become a PhD in history? And so, and more specifically, I was kind of going over things, but really the, the, the biggest thing that they really had a question on, because they understand, most people understand the dissertation and they understand coursework, but they don't understand comps or the, comprehensive exams. Or the infinite amount of patience required. Yes. So Patience we, and diligence. Yes. <laughs> but before we get started on this, because I've been through, I've finished, both of you are going through it, so I figured this would be a good conversation to have. But can I ask a question I just want to put out there for both of you? Sure. This has bothered me for quite some time. When you are a medical doctor in this country, say, and you're at a gathering of people, and you give your medical opinion, well, it's not so much true now, but it used to be, nobody would question that medical opinion, right? Like, let's say you're at a, in a gathering of friends and family. Well, I wouldn't say nobody, but Well, yeah. if you're in a gathering of friends and family, 
or and somebody has a medical question, if the medical doctor answers the medical question, usually mo- people are going to go, oh, okay, he, you know, he, he's an authority on it, right? He's a doctor. If if you if you go to law school and you train for years to be a lawyer, people don't question your opinion on law unless it's another lawyer, right? I mean, but most people wouldn't question, right? So why is it when you spend seven years or longer mm-hmm. going to graduate school to, you know, become a historian, that if you give your opinion even to your own family, they argue with you. I remember you bringing up this same thing a year ago in a conversation we had, and I thought it was well well worth actually actually talking about. So I'm really glad you actually brought up that that question. Do you have something to say, Robert? Oh, no, no, no. no I just... That's... If you look at how we look at history, how we disseminate historical information, it will always be argued. When we do our work, we're told, you argue. What is, when I look at historical, what is the argument? So it just sets itself up to be... uh, I get that. Debated. I I, I get that within the context of the historical debate. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, but I guess what I'm ask, what I'm saying is, is that, and and I've seen this not just with historians, but also with say English professors and things like that. But people with with degrees, with liberal arts degrees, like a doctorate in history, doctorate in literature, doctorate in whatever, it seems to me like they're not. I won't. I don't want to say believed as much, but I almost want to say respected as much. Um, as say a medical doctor or anybody else. Well, I think anybody you know who can read and go to a bookstore can go buy a book on history or you know you don't even have to go to the bookstore you can go to the internet and read everything because if it's on the internet it has to be true because mm. it's there and i think that that definitely feeds into this argument you know people have read things and because they have read things they challenge your opinion i mean people don't challenge a doctor's opinion because they don't know anything about medicine and people don't really challenge a lawyer's opinion because they don't know anything about law Mm. But they happen to have read a history book somewhere or paid a bit of attention in college or high school when someone was teaching them history. So they have, have an opinion about it. Um, you, you, you see it oftentimes when there are, well, two things here that you can talk about. The historical argument that I think people should discuss openly and you should argue about. And then there are other things that are historical facts, which, you know, they should not be argued. And yet they are. A perfect example of this is Holocaust denial. It is an unequivocal fact that the Holocaust did actually happen, yet you still have people who deny its very existence. So, I mean, the historical debate on the Holocaust is an important debate which should should continue and never end, but the fact of the Holocaust is not something that is up for debate. It is simply true. It is proven to be true. And I think that that, that kind of feed, feeds into what you're trying trying to get at, what is... What is the right approach to the argument and what is the wrong approach to that argument? Could we say that an example that comes to mind is when Hitler took over Germany, he was trying to rewrite their history. Well, Stalin did that, as, as did Mao, yeah. as we talked yeah. about last All new week. regimes yeah. usually do. Yeah, they rewrite their history, which makes it subject to debate and argument. I mean, this is this is the same thing that I particularly despise because 
I work with African history, I mean, colonial Africa and um, well, World War I, imperial, imperial history within Africa, and even in ancient his- history of Africa, that you have so many people who just make up things. Yep. Just make up things about Africa and then discredit all of the actual known facts and real empires and real civilization and real social and cultural development within Africa made by the African people independent from, from anyone else in the world. And I think that's definitely part of it. The people can just make up things and then you know, tell people it's true. And then people are you know, dumb enough to actually believe it because they read it on, on the Internet. No, no, I want to touch on Simon. You're both familiar with Simon uh, Sharma? Yes, okay. Okay. Mm. One of the things he uh, he puts out, and I believe it had to do, uh, he says the noble dream, if you will. He says, no, uh, add your perspective, your viewpoint, et cetera, et cetera. And that is a slippery slope. That's when it stops. Some of that stops being. You want to create a narrative. So, well, I'll just fill in these blanks. I think. I mean, you Is and that, I, you and I have had had this discussion. I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt you. When people in a history textbook published by University Press you know, make up things. Oh yeah. And that 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 bugs the living hell out of me as well. I mean, I think. The, the correct way is saying that since we don't have all of the evidence, we can assume the following or we can predict the following based on the evidence we have. I mean, we have A and we have C. We don't have B, but because we have A and we, because we have C, it's fairly certain that B would be something like this and not present it as fact, but present it as mm-hmm. this is an educated opinion. It's not a guess. This is an educated opinion based on the facts that I actually have presented so far. Informed speculation. An informed guess, an informed <laughs> speculation. No, that's that's the difference. Like when I wrote my dissertation, there are things in there that you can't. I mean, history, you can only go as far as the sources can take you. And yes. sometimes these people. Now, in my case, you know, Kellogg wrote exactly. All the time, he was writing exactly what I wanted him to write, right? I had this. Not preconceived narrative, but I said, wouldn't it be great if he said this or did this? And then about a month later, I'd find a document where he did say exactly what I was talking about. Um, That means you're very lucky. Right. Uh, That's what several of my professors told me. They said, wait, he actually said that? Yeah. And they're like... Or your sources are made up. No. (laughs) Yeah, but you you touched on it. I believe Then's fighting words right now. Go ahead, Preston. The last episode, you touched on that because you spoke about history is about a leap of faith. It really is, because there's uh, you had spoke on that about. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, there's there was a art, famous article um, where the guy said history as an act of faith because it's it's it takes. He was saying he wasn't trying to compare history to religion, but he was uh, the author's. I'd have to go back and look it up for you. Um, but he was saying that it takes just as much faith to sometimes believe things that historians tell you because of the lack of texts or evidence or because of the fact that the evidence is so old. Or or basically you're trusting what the historian said because nobody else, unless they're a professional historian, has the time to go and look up these sources. Nobody else has the time to examine them themselves. Yet people and, who are not professionals look these things up all the time, apparently, and have 
truth on their side for some strange reason? They, they may look it up on the internet, but very few ever go to look at the actual sources. Going back to our earlier conversation hmm. on this right here, a key to part of the reason it is disputed and argued, and you say that there's not as much credit, it comes to a credibility issue, hmm. some of this, is think about, we just talked about Stalin, we talked about Hitler, it's because history has been manipulated for so long to fit whoever was in charge, that regime. It was manipulated. To fit that, that national narrative that gives the new government mm. legitimacy. Yep. And because of the manipulation, we know that some things aren't true that have been espoused as, oh, this is fact. But would you say Stalin, would, Stalin was not trustworthy? Uh, I would... Defer that to my colleague here. Oh, defer to your <laughs> colleague. He just made his brain reset there for a second. Dodge, <laughs> dodge that one, didn't we? Uh, I think it was very dependable. You, you were very dependable that he could murder you in your sleep. Yeah. yeah. Now, that, that's always been like... The... And on the manipulation, 1619. We're experiencing mm. it right now. We talked about the 1619. Look how history is being manipulated and changed to fit another narrative. It's the same with the tearing down of statues that yep. have absolutely nothing to do with the Confederacy or, well, have everything to do with slavery um, because most of these people being torn down were abolitionists, which is ironic. And well, not that it has everything to do with slavery because some of it has nothing to do with slavery. It's, well, I I, mean, we promised we wouldn't get into the current events. We oh, walked right into it. I know, but I mean, without slavery, you wouldn't have... The abolitionist movement. That That is my point. Okay. Fair enough. I mean, they tore down Ulysses S. Grant's statue as well. I mean... Probably because he was a smoker. Right. And a, and a drinker. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, the smoker. Now, the drinker... The drinking thing actually is overdone by his by his enemies when he was president. But um, he was a smoker. He loved himself a cigar. Yes, killed him. Yep. So... Back, anyways, we, back we, to your... we we digress. We digress here. But no, this is yeah, so there's a there's a tremendous amount of trust placed in historians, right? Because normal people don't have the time to look up primary sources and make these decisions about them for themselves. Can they just I, don't. I mean, I, some of them might try, but it for one subject for me, it took Let's see. I start I picked up on Kellogg about 2014 is when I started studying him and I so for me, five years of study, of, of looking at sources, reading, determining things to write a dissertation about Kellogg, right? So that's five years of study on one subject to kind of get an idea of what the heck's going on here. Nobody's got that time unless they're professional historians. So, they, so people trust us to, to look at these sources for them and make judgment calls about the, what this source says, interpretations about what this source says and what this source says. And that's a tremendous amount of faith placed in the historian to do the right thing and not let their own personal beliefs, ideology, or heavy biases play in. I mean, there's always going to be bias in historical writing because humans are writing these things. But at the same time, historians are supposed to say, hey, you know, give a fair and balanced judgment call on these things. And Simon, that's, that's a tremendous amount of responsibility. And that, that goes back to Simon Shama because he, in his uh, one book, he gives, uh, oh, I wish I could think of the title of it. 
But anyway, he goes out on a limb and just makes up this whole based off of two known facts. And it had to do with a battle in Canada. Mm. Two known facts, and he adds everything else to it. And he's trying to say that history is just a story. That is what he's pushing for, that everybody's got their bias, et cetera, et cetera. So it's sort of Napoleon. He's almost like, yeah, well, he's almost saying don't check it. Well, I mean, the same thing. Which I think is wrong. Mm. I mean, the same thing Napoleon said, you know, history is a collection of lies we all agreed upon. And, you know, to to, to, to an extent that might very well be true, but to kind of jump in on, on, on the thing that you said, Austin, it's interesting that you say, I mean, historians look at these things and I think the difference between historians looking at primary sources and primary documents and simply people you know, off, off, off the street, you know, is that historians have had a long period of training to be able to look at historical documents and you know, disseminate the information, understand the context, understand the time period in which these things are taking place, and to be able to see biases, to see things that aren't, you know, real or made up within the historical narrative as written by by someone, to kind of, I would say, almost interrogate the narrative that this person is writing down and trying to decipher what is really true and what isn't. Yes, uh, but on the, if, I want to add to this right here, because what you're saying is... Add to the slippery slope? The very slippery slope historians, if that was truly the situation, we wouldn't have nothing to argue about. Does that make sense? We would not have anything to argue about if we all agreed, and we don't, and that 1619 project stuck in my head because there are historians out there who swear by it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, if everyone does exactly the same thing, there will not be disagreement. I think if everybody does the exact same thing, there still would be be disagreement on the interpretation of facts, of how things are are seen. And this goes down to a personal level. I mean, if you read, let's say, Herodotus, and I read Herodotus, we can come to two very different conclusions on specific points within his argument, but we can both agree that his larger argument is very similar to what you understand and what I understand. I think that is where, where, where the intricacy of history lies, is that the finer details that aren't explicitly explained within the historical no, text, that is oftentimes where historians agree, and well, disagree very much in their representation of that evidence to other people. No, but this like 1619 project, this is no little minute thing. Well, in this case, the reason that's stuck you know in your mind... You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah the reason is, that, that I think is stuck in your mind is because the 1619 project is being used to as a tool to further an ideological standpoint. Yes. It's, it's the rewriting of history to fit that. And I think that's why it's bugging you as much. But well, I was, it's I was, bugging thinking, me. I was it, thinking in my head, though... It's bugging me because it's taking what is we accept as fact and changing it. A lot of historians would uh, would argue the point that we don't actually believe in facts. Mm-hmm. It's all interpretations. I knew that was coming. Oh, well, come on. I mean, that's the first thing no, they'll, they'll teach you. but we have agreed upon dates, agreed upon events. And there are some things that there's so much evidence that, you know, you can't dispute it, like Earhart brought up the Holocaust, but also, say, the dropping of the atomic bombs. Mm-hmm. Um, I've met people that will ask the question, well, how do you know that we actually dropped atomic bombs in Japan? Well, there's photo evidence, for one. Uh, there's the evidence of thousands of Japanese who witnessed it. 
There's the fact that the, the American government never denied that we did it, right? And died of radiation poisoning. Yeah, afterwards. died of radiation poisoning. I mean, so, but but that's you know that's how people in their minds work it in their minds that oh well that never happened, right? Oh, the ones out there are saying that oh we never landed on the moon. Have you heard that one? The, the, the conspiracy theory <laughs> my, that, that it my was great old. Grandmother, my great-grandmother actually believed that we never landed on the moon because she believed God would never allow that to happen, right? Um, so it's like, oh, man. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, it was filmed out in a television studio in Las Vegas. Yep, I know, I know. Okay. Um, Maybe God just missed it. Yeah. No, the, so the interpretation of, of documents, I find that very interesting. I just want to touch on it real quick. This is... Um, that's part of the training, though, right? The, how to interpret primary sources, because I, I have met people and I know people, seen people on YouTube who will look at a document and say, oh, well, see, I found this primary source document where it says this. But the thing that they're not taught to do is ask or even think about the context of the source that they're reading. And so, and I saw this with the Christo- with Christopher Columbus, especially. You had... Um, oh, America's favorite punching bag nowadays. That's right. And they will you they this one guy who had a YouTube video where he was I can't remember he, he does uh, these cutesy YouTube videos on history and gets paid more money than we do and we're actual mm-hmm. we're actual historians because so he entertains I may have people. I may have a little bit of beef with this guy I can't remember his name though so that's but that's okay I don't need to mention his name uh, that only perpetuates more money to his YouTube channel so but he went on about Christopher Columbus and he was using letters from Christopher Columbus, but he was taking just little tiny pieces out of those letters to quote from. And the full context of the letter that Columbus was writing back to Spain was not being given. So, you know, one of the things that we're taught to do for however many years we're in the program is Mm. look at a primary source and go, okay, is the author being serious here? Is there sarcasm involved here? Is this author writing this document because he knows that that's what they want to hear back at home? You problematize the source. Yeah, you you say can, you know is this yep. is what this person is writing in this source actually what they mean, or are they saying something, or are they saying this because they know that's what the person on the other end wants to hear, or are they lying to themselves trying to convince themselves? These are the questions we have to ask, and that's why it takes years to examine these sources. Whereas somebody else just finds that source randomly on the internet and says, "Here, I have the proof." It says it right here in this document. It's like, yeah, okay. So let's take let's take this as an example, right? Let's say that. Um, you know, let's let's say that uh, historians, you got regular people that are reading documents that come straight out of Nazi Germany, and okay. let's say that somebody, this is how you can become really anti-Semitic really quickly, because you're reading these Nazi documents. Well, I have all these historical sources, and they're talking about all the bad things the Jews did. Mm-hmm. Look at it; it's right here in black and white. Right? Um, Martin Luther wrote a pamphlet, "The Jews and Their Lies." Right? That that was published. Uh, not long before his death, most people don't know that about Martin Luther. Somewhere here in my collection, I have the only translated English version of that pamphlet. Just randomly found it, and I said, oh, this needs to be preserved because hardly anybody knows he wrote this because it was never translated out of the he German. He was quite the anti-Semite. Yeah. And, um, but if, if, if all you have, you know, so somebody reads these documents and go, well, look at all the things that the Jews did. It's like... Yeah, but did you ever stop to ask the question, maybe this isn't real because the Nazis wrote it? Did you ever ask the question, maybe this is propaganda? I mean, you can you can even go back in history to the medieval period when the Black Plague broke out across yeah. Europe. 
And then you have so many cases where church and court documents <coughs> blame the the outbreak of the Black Plague on the Jewish community because they poisoned the wells. You know, they they have witches amongst them that you know cause us to be ill. Oh, and and, and none of these things are actually true. They they simply aren't facts. But someone who is you know not I would say versed in actually understanding the context of those documents and understand that these people were anti-Semitic. And of course, they would blame the Jewish people who lived in the forest and not in town. So that made them suspect to begin with because they would be killed if they lived in because town. Because the forest was where the devil lived. Yes, the forest is where the devil lived. That's why all of the German fairy tales always involve dark things happening to you yep. when you leave the organized order and civilization of the town or the village, you know, Red Riding Hood, here we mm-hmm. go. Um, Hansel and Gretel. Yes, this yeah. is this is kind of the 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 idea that people reading those documents say, well, yeah, of course, I mean the Jews were the cause of the Black Plague because here is a historical source that says it has that says it's true, mm-hmm. ergo it has to be true. Just like um, the witch, uh, witches were blamed for the cause of the Thirty Years' War. Yes, my grandmother just finished that book, Europe, Europe's Tragedy. Uh, which is a tome, if anybody ever wants to read about the Thirty Years' War, Europe's Tragedy. There are much shorter books. This thing's like three over three inches thick. Get the get the abridged version. Mm-hmm. So my grandmother finished it. Cliff notes. There's a whole chapter in there though where the author I can't remember his name right now. It will be in the the podcast the show notes obviously, but um, he has a whole chapter where he talks about the fact that after the Thirty Years' War, they go, okay, so why did we fight this war? And instead of blaming religion like they rightly should have. Uh, they go, oh, it must have been witches. And there was like an enormous amount of witch, witch burnings. Witch burnings afterwards. Yeah, yeah. After after the Thirty Years' War. But if you read the documents from that time period where they're blaming the witches for the Thirty Years' War and you don't ask the questions that we've been taught to ask, you go, oh, well, look, it was this, this group of, of witches that started it. It's like, ugh. I mean, it, it's the same thing. It's when like you're... reading the Malaeus Maleficarum <laughs> and believing that those two guys wrote in, what was it, 14... I have it right over there. I just can't remember the year, 1450s or something like that. Yes. Uh, that what they wrote about witches was true. Well, I mean, there are people who do believe that. <sighs> I mean, come on, not, not... I mean, I see... I, there's enough strange things in the world that I allow for the possibility of. I really do. But a lot of the stuff that these guys wrote about was specifically designed so they could entrap women into being witches and burn them. And I mean, if you, if you, even if you look at the 1950s and 60s, how many people who happened to work in you know, New Mexico or around Area 51 happened to write down in journals that they were abducted by aliens? Or Bigfoot, the or, people living up in the Northwest. Or Bigfoot. I saw Bigfoot. My grandfather wrote in his diary in 1888 that he saw Bigfoot. It does not make those things actually true, but yet there are people who read those things and then believe, oh my God, these things are real. Look, here we mm-hmm. have a source from the 1880s that talked about Big, Bigfoot, despite the fact that Bigfoot will be you know, over 200 years old now, if it was still with us. That's why it's a family of Bigfoot. Oh. There's, I can't remember that. That guy's name, but he he claimed that he was kidnapped by a family of Sasquatch. Um, I have a book that was put up, I I think Reader's Digest or something like that, but it was called The World's Unexplained Mysteries. I love that book because it covers like, it was was published I think in like the 1970s or 1980s. And so it's got those older photographs that you don't see anymore of all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy putting his foot up next to the plaster cast that he did, is it real, you know, or something like that. Just that old school stuff that you don't see anymore, except on a, a few stations on a, on a cable or, or satellite TV. 
But uh, I really, I one thing I appreciated was it was hysterical when we went to um, Disney World in Florida, Animal Kingdom. They have a ride there. It's based on Mount Everest or something like that. And while you're waiting in line, Disney actually went out and got artifacts from some of these expeditions, including photographs where that expedition was searching for the Yeti. Because the whole ride was based on a roller coaster you're trying to get away from the Yeti. And there's a point where you go into an ice cave and then the Yeti appears and you start going backwards in the roller coaster. It's really cool. But Is it a family of Yetis? Just the one, I think. Oh. But it had all of this documentary evidence that I've seen on, on you know documentaries before on, on TV. Pictures and stuff of them finding footprints in the snow that they were being followed and tracked. Journal entries. Disney had all this stuff. And Leslie goes, wow, they went to you know a lot of effort to create this stuff for the ride line. I said, they didn't create this. I said, I've seen that picture before. They went out and found this stuff. They didn't have to create anything. They just scanned stuff and reprinted it. Well, you know, you know my opinion of Disney. I, I agree with Tolkien that wrote in his will that Walt Disney was never allowed anywhere close to any of his writings, and that's about as much faith as I have in Walt Disney. You know, Walt Disney, the evil mouse empire, the search for more money. That's kind of my 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 opinion there. I think that's fair. I think if Teddy Roosevelt were alive today, Disney would be one of the companies he'd break up. Yes, one of the trusts <laughs> he would bust. No, I, yeah, they have a they're getting so they don't have a monopoly on production, but they certainly have a monopoly on content, right? Wasn't the rat monopoly in the old days called a plague? <laughs> just just <laughs> ju- just an honest question to to a friend. I don't know if Disney can sue us for saying that or not. I don't no. think they can. Maybe. But I don't. I, they, they don't. They're not worried about us. We're we're not Joe Rogan or something like that. So getting back to our original um, question from one of our listeners, they like I said. So just to give a quick overview of what it takes, because I was going to title this title of this podcast, um, what it takes to be a PhD in history or something yeah. like that. So essentially, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, essentially. Coursework, when you enter into a PhD program, you go through, at least in the American system, in the European system, it's different, but in the American system, you do coursework. And coursework is your, your basically your classes where you take different classes, say theory and methods, but also topical courses, thematic courses. Um, I mean, about three years? Three years. That's about three That's years. That's what I was thinking, <clears throat> three years. Yeah, I think mine was three and, and, and I mean, the theories, and I think the theory and method is really very important to kind of oh, explain. Oh, yeah, that's why it's the first class you take. Well, to explain what it is, because I don't know if most people who aren't historians know what theory and methods are. Oh, that's fair. I mean, your, your theory okay. is kind of when you look, you, this is a way that people look at history, and there are many different theories of history. A Marxist history, where you look at economic and social class struggle, um, you have the your favorite postmodernism, Ugh. which looks at the, the relativity of everything and the majority of things being social constructs. Those are ways in which you look at historical events. Those are kind of the theories that that people use, historians use, and you can look those up on on the internet. There are many, many, many theories. And feel free to ask us questions. And I and I probably yes, should have plugged this. That I'll, I'll play it at the end. They know how to contact us. Yeah. That using those theories <clears throat> definitely when you can find what theory they're it's how they interpret it. Yes, it, it, I mean, it the gives theories, you a view on how the, they're I mean, the why th- they're interpreting it the way they are. The theories help you to interpret history, because you know history is a very nebulous, you know, dirty, weird thing. 
it isn't static. It isn't. It isn't static. It isn't neat. And it isn't nice. It, it, it's kind of like walking to walking to well through Hiroshima right after the bomb dropped. It's a it's a rat's nest, and you you have to find find a way to explain events and correlations and connections to people, and that's why historians use theories to look at mm-hmm. history and present a narrative to people based on a theory. Now there are people who don't use any theory who simply look at historical. Well, I would say historical documents, sources, narratives, and use methods, the historical methods to kind of look at these sources and try and construct a, a, a coherent story. Because, well, history is a story that you tell other people to relay facts, information, and what you've interpreted from these, well, from historical evidence based on actual historical methods. It's not that these things are made up, and I can't stress that that enough. Historians don't just sit there and make things up. Well, not all and, of them. Well, th- there are some. Granted, <laughs> I don't yes. think, Sorry. and I don't think there are historians. I really don't think no, they I, should I be called historians. I agree. They should be scourged and crucified. Yes, I, 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 I'm this adamant about it. The, the, the field of history has lost its, its respectability because you have people in the historical field who can make up things willy nilly, and then nobody is there to push back on them. Or correct them. Well, and they focus on the theory more than the actual sources. So they they choose, this is the theory of history I'm going to... So to me, the theories in history and the methodologies in histories are tools, as you said, that we use to create the narrative of history. Yes. And what a lot of people do is they will pick a particular method or they will pick a... A methodology is a good thing because that kind of gives you a, base, a basis of how you're going to approach sources... But it's the theory of history that's a problem because they a lot of people will pick, like you said, postmodernist theory or Marxist or Marxist, Marxist theory, theories. and they'll look at that and say, okay, so every if everything so in Marxist history, as you well pointed out, everything is comes down to class struggle, oppression, and victimization. Yes, and so if that's the theory that you adhere to, and and I would call that an ideology. Yeah, because it, because it's based on, on the ideology, ideology of Marxism. If that's the theory you adhere to, like that's the line in the sand, then any source you go and look at from that point forward, you will have, even if it's not, you will read it in the context of class struggle, oppression, and victim. Okay, so who's the oppressor in this source and who's the victim in this source? Who's the oppressor in this historical narrative? Who's the victim in this historical narrative? And that may not always be the... Sometimes the oppressor turns into the victim, after they're conquered, sometimes the victims, uh, a, a good example of this is Protestants love, love to talk about, uh, well, not Protestants, just Christians in general. Christians in general love to talk about how pagan Rome butchered them and martyred them and massacred them, right? But nobody talks about the fact that after Christianity took over Rome, the Christians turned around and did the same damn same thing. thing to the pagans. You know, that, that actually reminds me of a, a funny story. Uh, I took my niece to the movies. She was little. And her mother was with with us. And we went to go see one of these old-time, you know, um, Turner classic movies on how the Christians were or like being... like Ben-Hur? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> but but here, here the Christians were being fed to... To, to Lions, one of those epics. I think that may be Ben-Hur, actually. Well, I can't remember. I don't think Ben-Hur had Lions in it. I, I remember something that involved chariots and horses. Yeah. Um, but, okay, now, we, on the screen you can see how all these poor Christians are being eaten by Lions. 
and then you know she was crying. That like whole... happened once in history, I think. Well, but more, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, probably more more than once, but for the sake of the argument, let's say once in this movie at least. And she was crying insanely about this, and we couldn't you know get her get her to stop crying. And then um, we asked her, well, what was the matter? And she said, well, there was one lion that didn't get get a Christian. And she's really and she felt really sad for for the lion. I thought, well, she's five years five years old. I think that that's probably a good a good point for her, you know. <laughs> but this is but this is what I'm what I'm talking about is it's silly. I'm sorry, I, I had know, to bring no, it up. No, yeah. I, no, I agree. But so if a person approaches, and, and here's the other thing too is that if and you were Rusty, I think you brought this up about putting modern day values or modern day ideas on historical subjects. They tried uh, to. This was something my theory and methods teacher like said no 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 to which was which was and his, and his example was trying to put a history of race on something before race as a term or an idea even existed so we talked about in one episode I think that race the the idea of race the wasn't invented until around the 1820s yeah um, the ter- the word race, there were prejudices beforehand, of course, but it wasn't based on quote unquote skin color or people being of a different race of humans. I mean, yeah, I think the and, the, the race thing came about at and, the and height his, of the scientific revolution. Yeah, really. and his big example was that there was a historian who wrote a book that was a history of the Crusades, where they and their ideology or their historical theory was everything. Every conflict, you know, everything in history has a racial tint to it. So this person wrote a history of the Crusades based on race. And our, our theory of methods professor, uh, the one from Canada, ah. said uh, that in itself is racism. That's a racist history because, he's, because race was not, in the, it was not in the minds of the European crusaders or the Muslim defenders at the time of the Crusades. It had nothing to do with skin color or people being of a different race. It had everything to do with religion because there were black and white Christians fighting on the side of the Crusades. And Arab Christians. And there were Arab Christians as well. And there was just as many different colors on the Muslim side fighting back. Yes. It had nothing to do. And so he said, so for a historian to write a history of the Crusades based on race is entirely improper because that idea of what race was did not even exist at that time. So these people weren't thinking in those terms. So it was entirely inappropriate to do something like that. So, but you, and you see, so that's just the example he gave. Yeah. And I'm not trying to start us back into the conversation of what's going on today in America. But that's the, that's the example, I distinctly remember that's the example he gave in class. And that, but that can be applied to anything else. You can't do a, a history of class, uh, uh, class conflict, when the idea of class, people being like people being the middle class, the labor class, the working class, that was invented by Marx. Yes. Which is why we call it Marxist theory. So Marx was what, 1860s, 1870s? Yes. Was, Somewhere in that area? Yes. You're so, 1870s, Marx and Engel. Height of the Industrial Revolution. So you really. can't say yeah. that the British in the 1700s understood themselves in terms of class. It's been applied. It's been applied to them. They there was there was social structure, there was social status, and social hierarchy. But but the term working class and labor class we 
we retro, we retroactively attach to attach to those histories. Yes, because I mean in English society was very very structured, um, still semi based on almost a feudal ranking system within within England. But the, I mean, there was no 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 idea of the, the the working class. There was no concept of the bourgeois. I mean, all of the definitions that people use from Marxist theory did not exist back then. Was there a a working class, as in a class that did the work, the peasants? Yes, but they were seen as the peasants. Mm-hmm. That was their social their social standing. They weren't a class in and of themselves, and all of them weren't simply relegated to being poor. Because many of actually the peasants were rich in and of themselves, but they weren't part of the higher social rungs because they did not meet up to the social standing of having a title, having noble blood. Those things still yeah. still influenced England heavily and, in in the, the 18th century. And see, Marx, that's what Marx tried to do when he wrote this theory was, if you look back in history, what he was trying to say was, if you look back in history, everything in history can be, can be put into context of class warfare class and oppression and victimiz- victimization. And that's why you don't have a lot of true Marxist historians anymore because of that idea of, of, because finally we came to the conclusion that it's a nice theory, you know, Carl, but at the same time, it's like, you can't show me that people in Europe thought of themselves in terms of class and thought of themselves in terms of, of, of oppression and victimization. Now, there was a lot of oppression and victimization that happened in that time period. But those people who you might consider being oppressed might have thought uh, might have thought of themselves as the conquerors, or the less oppressed, or I the mean, less oppressed, if, right? If you yeah. if you go to Nottinghamshire, people are really oppressed because they have the shadow of Nottingham. Here in Yorkshire, we're less oppressed, you know. Yeah. So, anyways, but that's so we got off on theory and methods, but we were talking about the coursework, and I was yes. trying to build up to the question that we got. Okay. So you do three. So basically, for the listeners out there. If you'd like to ask more questions about theory and methods and and some of the things about history that you've always wanted to ask, maybe again, this is the only podcast that I know of, and there's probably some out there that's, so the statement isn't exactly true, but um, one of the few podcasts out there where you can ask questions of three different history professors, doctorates in history, uh, and not have to pay tuition. So if you want to contact us and ask us your questions, you can find us at uh, JCA walk into a bar at gmail.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter at JCA walk into a bar. Sorry, I keep forgetting to plug that at the beginning of the of the show each time. Well, you can edit that in. Nah, I, I prefer just to leave it in because now they're like, I want to ask a question. How do I do that? And I just gave them the answer. Or leave it all natural, eh? Right. So, um, <laughs> coursework takes about three years, three to four years, depending. Yeah. And it's a bunch of us sitting around a table and doing exactly what we just did for like the last 20 minutes. Discuss these theories, yep. debate, understand these theories. And there's a lot of weeding out there that goes on there too. Yeah. The professor will find out that uh, you got no business being in graduate school. And we know some of our colleagues that were very nice people. We liked them, but they left because they couldn't take it. Um, I, I know of a few, and that's unfortunate. And you never know; they may come back, and and, and but they cough. just weren't able to handle it at the time. So you're taught how to do these things; you've developed your skills. So after after the coursework is completed, you do you then move on to comps, and we're going to cover that in just a second. Mm. But comps, when we talk about say comps, what we mean is comprehensive examinations. And then after you pass that, you are what is considered ABD, all but dissertation, 
which means there's nothing left to do in the program but write your dissertation. And then, of course, you write the dissertation, which is basically a book, and you give that to a committee, and then the committee grills you in a defense where they ask you questions, and then you're a doctor. Uh, amazing how that works. And then nobody believes you because <clears throat> you're not, a, because yeah, you're not yeah. a medical doctor or you're yep. not a lawyer. Yep. Bastards. So, um, <laughs> oh, sorry, I just slipped out. Um, so... Like I said, a lot of people understand the coursework because they can relate to that if they've been to college. You know, it's it's just it's just schoolwork, right? And a lot of people understand the dissertation; they get that. But not a lot of people know about comprehensive exams. And so I'm just going to give a brief definition, and I'd like to kind of because both of you are actually prepping for your comprehensive exams. So yes, we we, we might be the right people to ask. Yeah. So with comprehensive exams, you choose three fields in history. Th uh, thematic, topical, whatever, mm. that you want to be proficient in. And the idea is, is that you have your topic, the topic of your dissertation, which you're obviously an expert in, but you have these other three fields that you're also an expert in because you have read all of the major works and arguments of this historical field of study and you have been tested over it. So technically you are able to teach in these three fields. Now, I make the argument that any historian who has been trained properly can teach in any subject if they put themselves through, say, another comp field like that. You buy all the relative books, you understand all the relative arguments. A lot of people would say, well, no, 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 because they weren't trained originally that way. And I said, well, in these days, historians have to be flexible and be yes. able to teach a multitude of things because schools are wanting a one-catches-all type thing. And some of the schools are more traditional and say, no, we need a traditional British historian. But then there's that historian that studied continental Europe and said, hey, I did a, you know, I can teach British too. Just give me, you know, three months to read up on it. And I think that that's a, I think, and I, and I know that there are others who say, well, no, you can't do that. But I think that is a, per, a perfectly reasonable suggestion that if you give me three or four months to read up on all the arguments and stuff, I can teach. And, you know, I may go to other people for help, but in a, in a situation where a school can't hire as many teachers as it would like, you know, you think about, the guy who taught us theory, mm. he is technically an environmental historian. Environmental historian. Yet yeah. he taught you, Erhard, a class on the history of commodities, right? Yes. Commoditization of things yeah. in the world. And you said that's one of the best college classes you've ever taken. No, that, that was hands down one of the best courses that I have actually ever taken. And I think it does it does support your argument that you 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 do have historians, and this is a caveat that I have to add to that, I do not think all historians are actually capable of doing that. I would agree. I think that there are historians who are set in a, a certain number of fields and they specialize in those fields and they're quite content to ju just stay in those fields. But I do think that there are many historians who are able to go for a month, two months, read up all of the major arguments, the major books, and even contact fellow historians to get input from them to, I would say do an unofficial comprehensive exam within a certain field in history and then quite be able to teach other students what they have learned from that field. And I think that is that is the great worth of people like that who can actually educate themselves to educate others in turn. Yeah, I wish I, I, wish I would have taken that class from him because oh, you would have just the it. book list you've given me for the history of commodities, I, I have really... I, I bought... You know, two of them are sitting over here, so yes. I haven't read them yet, but it just fascinates me, that whole topic. So so that's the purpose of comps. And it used to be, 
the way I did it, which uh, it was refer- comprehensive exams was always referred to jokingly as academic hazing. In the old days. <laughs> In the old days. I'm one of the old guard, right? Uh, uh, Vive la France. You know, the uh, old guard. The old guard. The right? old guard. Uh, the old guard. Yeah, okay. um, so, you know what happened to the old guard, right? Yeah, they got butchered by Wellington. Yes. So uh, <laughs> Called COVID nowadays. Old crooked nose, yes. So anyways, the... The way that they used to do comps, at least when I went through it, was you studied, you became proficient. So you choose your three topics, and then you choose three professors that are experts in that field. And those professors assign you a book list of anywhere from 30 to well over 100 books in some cases for each topic. Yes. You then read all these books, and you have to memorize, well, at least when I did it, you had to put to memory commit to memory, the different historians, their arguments in that historical field, identify the major arguments in that historical topic, and then basically you know this historian said this, this historian said this, and this book, and this book. And then, at least the way I did it, you were stuck in a room with a computer with no network access for eight hours a day, th- three days, one for each topic, and you wrote your a an essay basically anywhere from well with my committee they said anywhere from 17 to 30 pages they didn't want over 30 pages for some professors they said oh no it must be at least 50 pages my committee's like that's an entire dissertation chapter i don't want that so different committees have different ideas about how this is supposed to be done my committee fortunately was like no we don't want because you know so what so what you're saying is no one has an idea how it's done correct that is so subjective so, so information to that too, and that change it's different in every state. Yes, well, it's no, it's different from to in every college. Yeah, every university. college too, yeah. but especially when you change states. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but even in Texas, they do comps differently from university to university. It's hardly mm-hmm. uh, in smaller states. Maybe what in a state like Texas? I mean, with all the universities we have here. Oh yes, uh, it's different in each system and everything else like that. So that's that's how they. Um, so you do it for three days, you write these essays based on a question that you're given by the professor, and then at the end of the three days, you're, you know, spat out by the whale. No. Um, at the end of the three <laughs> days, you are, um, you are put before an oral examination committee, which is where you sit at a table with these three professors, two outside readers, and then they ask you questions about everything you wrote in those essays and what you read. And by, the, by that fourth day, I was so... I was relaxed in my oral examination, but I was also, you know, just tired, mentally exhausted. Draining. Yeah. Well, yeah. On the second day, I, I messed up the written portion of my comp field. I can say that because I've, I've graduated now and, and the certain professors retired. And he knew I knew what I was talking about. Because the shame has gone away. Right. The shame, <laughs> has, the shame has left me. So, But he, he knew I knew what I was talking about. And so he asked permission from the committee chair to... For, more, for extra time to ask me more questions. So he grilled me for over an hour. And I was like, why is he asking me these things? He knows I know it. And then afterwards he told me, he said, you kind of messed up the writing portion. And I wanted, he said, I knew from our conversations in, our, in my office that you knew what you were talking about. I just had to make sure for the purposes of this examination. And I was like, okay, that explains everything, right? But I had messed up on that second day because I spent so much time and energy on the first day and I was drained by the second uh-huh. day. So how do they do it now, gentlemen? You are you are preparing for your comps now. So just give me a brief overview of how they're doing it now, and then 
I want to go on to what what topics specifically you're studying. So, who wants I mean, to take that? Rusty, you were you 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 started on it. I think you can you can kick it off, and then I'll I'll, I'll fill in the gaps. Okay. Uh, nothing's changed. It's still three fields. However, now one difference is, and mine's a little different to begin with because I'm doing mine in conjunction with my classes while I'm doing my classes. Uh, each You're given a list of books. You work directly with that professor, that expert in the field. You work directly with them through. And then when it's when I've completed those three exercises, if you will, I will, that there's a week set aside, I believe, and you have two days per topic and you can do it at home hmm. is one of the things that's, that's different now. Uh, you can do it at home with your notes and your books? Yes. That's that's how they set it up, kind of to alleviate exactly the problems that you you faced with being physically worn out and just going off of rogue memorization of whatever yeah. Yeah, you can because, recall at that time. Yeah, because I had to memorize the names of authors and their arguments and what they were saying in their books, the names of their books even. And so the first thing I did when I started out, like say on my, that first essay, is I wrote down all the names of the authors and I wrote the names of the works by them so that I could just have the, a list but you weren't allowed to take notes in there. You weren't allowed to take um, your books in there. You had to do it all from memory. So they've changed it now to where you can do it from home with these books with you. Well, I mean, there's no explicit rule that says you're not allowed to use your notes. I mean, mm. they and, and I think they're sending you home with the expectation that you actually do refer to your to your notes because many people have this problem of remembering 115 authors and the titles of their books or 50 books, the authors and the title of their books. Most people and most historians have bookshelves in their offices. And they can say, oh, the book on, let's say, the wood that became a commodity. Oh, it's mahogany. I can't recall the author's name. Exactly. So I go look at my bookshelf. Ah, it's such and such. Anderson, for that matter. Conversation we've had here, it shows the exact same thing. We'll be talking, we'll go, oh, I can't think of the author's name or I can't think of the mm-hmm. book name. And, and sometimes you remember the author or you remember the book. Yep. And another thing, too, to keep in mind, even though they've changed it that way, from what, I've ta- from what little bit I understand, the expectation is a little higher. Yeah. Because you have the notes in front of you. They yeah. expect more. They It's... No, the expectations. Yeah, so that's that's up. how we keep the um, the standard high. So the the expectation of being able to remember all this stuff, you're granted a kind of a, a little bit of leniency because you were put in a room for eight hours with nothing and mm-hmm. had to come up with all this. And now that you have all your books, they're kind of like, okay, we we expect a better. And I, and I get and I understand that point, and I think that it's probably good the way they do it now because they're expecting a higher quality of argument, higher quality of writing. Yep. Because you were you didn't have to do it all from memory, and that to me, I I sat in so I was you know one of the, the student representative on the executive graduate committee for a while, and these are they were having I remember the professors having this argument the over political stooge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember them having this argument of, um, you know, do we want quality over quality over quantity, you know, things like that. Do we want them to write more and tell us less, or do we want them to write 
you know, less and tell less, us more. Less and tell us more. more. Um, our favorite professor, the one that taught us theory and methods. Uh, well, no, you had a different theory and methods professor. Come to think of it, the one from Canada. No, I had both. Oh, that's right, you did have both. So he he uh, said, you know, I would because ha- they were talking about uh, book lists, and yes. some some professors were wanting to say you had to have a minimum of forty books on your list, and. He was going, he said, I would rather the students have less books and engage deeply with the with these topics because of less books than to just have a skimming knowledge of a hundred and something books. And I think that that argument is very, uh, a very valid argument. And it seems, and that, and they are, that argument took the day also because my professor, they were trying to claim that that, um, the 40 the 40 the 40 book minimum the 40 book minimum was something that ivy league colleges and universities were doing and uh my professor from oxford was in that meeting and she i remember she goes well when i did comps uh when i did comps we didn't have a 40 minimum book list and I did my doctorate at Oxford, and I think that's about as Ivy League as you can get. And I was like, oh, <laughs> uh, uh, uh. <laughs> I loved her. Uh, Squash that. I think, I, I think that is the most Ivy League that you can possibly get. You know? that, well, that, they are the Ivory they Tower. Are, yes, they are the Ivory yeah. Tower. You know? uh, yeah, so. But I mean, you're, you're, you're right. Um, this is something that I often have to ask the same, the same question about. What is your education like? Is it as wide as a football field with only an inch deep, or mm. you know, is it as you know wide as as a a but swimming pool, but it's at least six feet deep? You a know, wide a, trench, a wide a wide <laughs> trench. I mean, this is this is um, something that I can talk about from back home in South Africa. If you were at university in South Africa, what you would do is the first year at university, you'd cover all of your basic education courses. And those basic education courses were specific to the field that you were studying. If you enrolled in business school, as I did, you would do business school-related subjects. You wouldn't do dance theory or art or shop or appraisal <laughs> or, you know, anything like that. That education was taken, well, was taken care of in high school and primary school, all of the general edif- edification that people need. In your second year, you drilled down, you specialized in certain fields that you can pick as in your third year and in your fourth year. And when you reached your master's and your PhD, that's when you really delved very, very deeply into specific related topics that you would be an authority on those topics that you picked. I mean, that just argues for two different points. And I think it's a better idea for people to have fewer books and engage deeply with the arguments and the concepts and even the evidence presented than having, you know, 150 books and you can hardly remember what the majority of them cover. Yeah, no, I agree. And so great segue into talking about the topics and theories. So um, who wants to start? Sorry, Erhard was trying to light Rusty on fire. He looked like a witch to me. Right? So who wants to... You want to go, Rusty, about talking about your topics, maybe why you chose them, or... Yeah, he has fun topics. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Three fields. Because we've talked enough about about the how these comps are done. Unless you want to add something to the comps, you're... No, no, no. Uh, my My three fields, Native American history, Texas history, and immigration history. Hmm. And I'm right, 
presently I'm working on my Native American history, and I've it's an eye opener. Can we talk about like one book? Yeah, no, go ahead. Just uh, one. <laughs> just one. <laughs> one only. Yes, like the Bible. Resendez, the other slavery, which to me, and that's the fascinating thing about studying history, is looking at the different perspectives, looking at the nuanced arguments, if you will. And just a quick overview on Resendez, uh, his main argument is that we were, everybody, not everybody, that's a bit of an overreach, the majority believed that Native Americans' disease is what killed them off. Resendez, in his uh, book, goes directly against that. It's uh, His argument is that slavery is what was responsible for uh, the death of many more than disease itself. I believe uh, Jared Diamond, in his book, talks about how... Is that guns, germs, and steel? Gun, germs, and steel. Mm. Talks about uh, how powerful... And I'm not. that's not to discredit that germs didn't play a role. It's just uh, his overall... Like I said, his overall argument is that... Uh, and it's not acknowledged that's... You don't find enough because we focus in uh, the U.S. U.S. history. We focus always on the African slavery, and that's his book. Just the title itself gives a hint to the other slavery. Well, I mean, I add to that. I think an explanation of that is that American history has always been obsessed with only American history. I mean, if you look at the Spanish influence within American history, for the longest time in American history, that was never mentioned. The Spanish um, Empire never existed. Mexican Republic never existed. The narrative was always only American, only Anglo. So I think that's why the history of America has always been obsessed with the history of African-American slavery. And it's only until, I would say, the late 60s and the 70s, really the 80s, when you have people looking at Spanish history and the Spanish influences on, let's say, the, the American Southwest, the borderlands, California. And out of that, you have this historical tradition where people are now bringing back Native American slavery as committed by the Spanish in the Spanish Empire into American history. Yes. One, uh, i got to plug another book. Please. Yes. Go ahead. Plug away. Yes. Uh, another book that The Murder State, it's about... And the about, American, there's about two American, I'll plug two books, The American Genocide. Oh. Uh, those give an excellent accounting of the Native Americans in California. Because oh. when mm. you take in, and I heard an interesting discussion a while back, we're talking about African slavery, and they were saying at the same time, after the Civil War, it's, I'm trying to figure out how to, how do you word the it integration or no uh, decimation and assimilation were happening at the same time? Mm. We were trying. Uh, Who's we? We. It's French. We we and we we monsieur. No no. America was trying 
I shouldn't say train because we had the problems with the Jim Crow laws, et cetera. But there was talk of assimilation while at the same time, the Native Americans, there was a decimation mm. trying to literally wipe them out, get rid of them. Yeah, exterminate uh, them. Yeah. It's uh, fascinating to me. Fascinating. And the extermination only happened after the assimilation plot failed. No, there was no... I I don't... Interesting Did you bring that up. There was never... Well, there were attempts at assimilation of sort. And I would say the assimilation happened after the failed dissemination. No. Yeah. Failed decimation. Decimation. Those two things... No, Flip flop between between the two. I mean, the early, the early colonists within America wanted to remove the Indians. Later on, the early American colonists and the thirteen colonies wished to incorporate the Native Americans. Those were the quote unquote five civilized the tribes: five civilized right? the Cherokee, tribes. the Choctaw, the Creek, the Seminole, yes. and the Chickasaw. 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 Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, go ahead, Aaron. And then ended, of course, in 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 the Trail of Tears when yeah. the assimilation was no longer possible along the American culture. I, I don't, I, and I don't, I'm going to push back on that. No, push away. I don't, I do not, I, I don't see the assimilation we're talking about because they were continually pushed, they were pushed further and further west. There was no, hey, we're just going to incorporate you and build around you. No. So, well, so they five, had, well, the five civilized tribes were in the United States. Within the 13 colonies, they were allowed they land, were pushed, land rights. They were pushed out. And they were only pushed the out. Well, a lot of the Cherokees themselves had plantations and owned slaves. Owned slaves. Yeah. African they, slaves, yeah. Yep. They sent their children to European-based schools. They could vote, funnily enough. And as soon as their land came up for sale um, under new legislation, they were forced out of the well, United States under if, the Jackson administration. Jackson. If you go... If you go to Georgia, I went to a conference in Dahlonega, Georgia, which is right there at the beginning of the Appalachian Mountains, beautiful area of northern Georgia at the University of Northern Georgia. And if you go to Dahlonega and you go to their town museum that talks about the town, they're very honest. And I was surprised by this. They're very honest about the Trail of Tears and the removal of the Indians, specifically the, the Cherokee. And they flat out say the reason that the Cherokee, that Jackson and the Americans wanted the land that these Native Americans were on is because there was gold underneath it. Mm -hmm. And they'll show you the prospecting maps from that time where it shows where they think the veins of gold are located in the Appalachian Mountains. And they were right because that that, that area was so rich in gold. And they and they'll say this. And, and my friend and I, that my friend, uh, shout out to Willie Kingren. He he. Uh, road tripped with me on that he wasn't able to go to the conference but he was able mm. to explore the town while i was in the conference but i i did not want to try and drive that by myself because i was really stressed out that time and i don't, didn't trust myself to stay awake so he road tripped with me on that one that was a great road trip and i'm grateful for him for that but he came back and told me all the stuff he learned at the museum and he went out there and looked at all the stuff and he told me we need to try this out because they said that that area was so rich in gold that the clay used to make bricks for the homes had gold in them. So to this day, if you go to the Dahlonega courthouse and you shine your high beams of your car on the bricks of that courthouse, you can see it glitters with gold. And it's true. It does. It's like that. There's all the, it's like there's glitter in those bricks all over. That's how much gold was in that area. And so the minute gold is found underneath there, it's like, well, we wanted to quote unquote assimilate the native tribes, but now y'all got to get out. 
I mean, go to uh, Oklahoma to, to to steal your your word to plug a book. Um, Indians in the Family by Dawn Peterson kind mm-hmm. of ex- explains the argument where Anglo's would adopt Native American children into their families, bring them into the families, and assimilate them as Anglo's. And then once that assimilation project failed, not on a local level, because it's very successful on a local level, but on a national level, mm. because of politics and policies and discovering of, of resources, that's when you have a return to a previous stance of pushing out the enemy. I'm not saying that one became one came absolutely before the other one. I'm saying that if you look at the historical narrative, there was a removal of Indians, then there was an assimilation of Indians. Then a removal of Indians, then an assimilation of go, Indians. It's, uh, yes. it's a flip-flop between these two policies yeah. until finally the, the last policy implemented that everybody knows in American history is the extermination policy. Mm-hmm. Um, on that right there, Cherokee, mm-hmm. they went overboard, if you will, uh, trying to assimilate they created and that was uh, a sad reality to what happened during that is they developed their own alphabet they uh wearing christian clothes a lot of them became uh christians but isn't that exactly what the anglos wanted precisely so how how can you go overboard (laughs) Then, if no, you're no, assimilating no, no, no. exactly as people want you to assimilate, no, I'm saying my by terming it, I I don't I don't want it to be construed as I'm saying they went overboard. That was a bit of a broad term. Yeah, they went the extra mile to try they and went, assimilate. Thank you. They went yeah. the extra mile, even owning to... slaves like the Southern aristocracy. Mm-hmm. Many of their children were adopted by Southern plant- yeah. planters and then educated to be planters themselves. But in reality, in the end, they were never assimilated because they were never accepted yes. by the but you know, major population. But you know, at present day, you know who really has... I love it every time you drive north on I-35 and you cross from Texas into Oklahoma, there is Windstar Casino. Oh, you're going to plug the casino. I'm going to plug that casino because I remember when I went there as a little kid, it was a little Quonset hut, uh, army surplus that they had built this casino in, and that's all it was. Now it's one of the largest casinos in the world, if not the largest, as far as space. Uh, Windstar Casino, owned by the Chickasaw Nation. There's so much money that they are getting from the white man now. (laughs) I just, my my dad brings that up every time we go by, and he said, he said, you see, I, I don't want to use this term, but I think I'm going to. He said, "He said, you see, they wanted reparations. They're getting it. <laughs> the, the, white, the white people go up there and they lose so much money in that casino. It's unbelievable. Um, and the Chickasaw Nation now has a cultural center that they've built out of this thing. I mean, the amount of wealth that flows to that casino is something. Um, and then you have the Choctaw Casino on uh, 75 north of yep. Dallas. So would you uh, call that a bribe? A bribe? Uh, I call I call it them. Uh, you can't have your land, but you can have a casino. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'd use the term appeasement, but I I would say that they have um they have really used that term their their advantage. Now I don't know enough about it, and I'm sure that somebody might comment and say, well, you know, a lot of the tribe doesn't see that money as the people that invested in it. It's I like, have that's heard probably, that argument. Uh, mm-hmm. That's probably true, but. Um, I, and I haven't studied enough of it to know how much money the Ch- the Chickasaw Cultural Center. I imagine they they used funds from the casino to help with build that. I'm not sure. Don't quote me. But all we I will. know is all I know is is that you know 
the 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 symbolism of that to me is just righteous. And one of, <laughs> one of the things we got to touch on this, mm-hmm. and maybe it's because I'm in my deep in within my Native American yeah, we, studies. Well, where, we tapped your comp brain. Right? Yes, your, your comprehensive well, brain is you got to remember exam brain is coming out. And maybe I was stretching by saying Native Americans because we got to remember they were individuals too they had their individual glue individual groups mm-hmm. like europeans you have spanish you have the italian well they had cherokee they had apache they had comanche you know we just talked about five groups there different, so different peoples yeah yes and Not we to tend the to Sioux. yes lakota Sioux. the oglala yep. the lakota yeah yep but they uh we tend to want to group them as native americans and they they had their own unique societies and their own unique groups. It's the same and, thing when the Americans bring up Africa. Yeah, it's one continuous it, good, country with one uniform populace from the north to the south analogy. and from the east into the west. Most people think Africa is a country. Yes, mm-hmm. like generally, most people <laughs> think Africa is a country in this country. <laughs> oh God, I've met people like that too. Another thing that's fascinating that started happening more so in the 60s forward is within Native American history because a lot of their stuff isn't isn't wrote down. And, you know, we're trained as historians, whoa, it's not wrote down, it didn't happen, we have no documentation. That is the sad fact of of, of historical work. We're... Now it's starting to become more accepted within uh, the historical circles to use oral history. Oral history, yeah. oral yeah. history is uh, is key to understand. It's revealed so many things that they can trace back, and it's been supported with the archaeology they're finding out. That's that's going to the thing and I wanted to bring up that historians yep. also have, have have to start rely at well starting to rely on archaeology and I think that people people in archaeology should also start relying on, you know, history or historians and historians and anthropologists because these all these fields inform, you know, the broader narrative so we can we can actually construct mm. a more quote unquote truthful representation of what actually happened within the past. Now, I mean, I, I've worked with oral traditions myself. They're, are they perfect? No. But are they the closest that we have to actual historical evidence from a society that they are did not have a writing system? Then they're very informative. They're very useful. And yeah. actually, that started at the end of decolonization is when they started digging into that in Africa after... After World War Two, when they started the decolonization in so many areas, and that's, I mean, that's oftentimes scholars that actually started looking at yes. oral traditions. And a, a very curious thing during the early stages of colonization, many mm-hmm. of the missionaries and explorers also wrote down many yes. of the oral traditions within Africa. So luckily, they were they were preserved. Now, granted, they do have their own missionary and imperialist slant to them as represented by the people who well, wrote these stories down. But the wonderful thing is that here you have two sets of narratives that you can actually refer to and see what remains the same and what has changed ov- over time. Hmm. Well, you know, I did a lot of work, when I, even when I was in graduate school and before, 
I did a lot of work amongst the Diné people, or the Navajo as they're more... Navajo, they refer to themselves as the... the Diné, the people. And um, I used to sit at the feet of this... uh, She insisted we call her Grandma Mitzi, because that's what she was. She was Grandma Mitzi. Drove like a 1960s truck around that she could fix herself whenever it broke down. Uh, She was in her 80s working on this truck, I remember. And she would insist that we sit at her feet while she told us the story. And I asked if I could record her. And she didn't get mad at me, but she said, no, no. She was very strict, in a strict tone. We do not, this, that is not how, that is not the way. You have to sit there and you memorize her stories. She mm-hmm. told us about Spider Woman that came down from um, from Spider Rock in the Canyon de Chez and taught the ancients how to weave baskets, things like that. She talked about the creation myths and things like that. She passed on that oral tradition to us. And I felt very privileged because I have no Native American uh, heritage in me whatsoever, and here she is passing that on to me. And so I, I, I and I, I was at least cognizant of the fact that that was a pr- great privilege and honor for me to receive that. But later on, when we she was having lunch with us, I asked her. I said, you know, as far as the oral histories go, I said, listen, I said I respect the way you think it needs to be done, but you really should think about recording these things. I have either text or just recording because I said, because you, as, as I've been here, you have told me that the younger generations are not wanting to carry on these traditions more and more. And you're lamenting that fact. And I said, and, and I understand that, but if the younger generations aren't willing to carry this forward, you're going to lose it all when the older generations go. And that has become very relevant today because the Navajo nation has been hit and nobody's talking about this amongst the COVID stories, but the Navajo Nation has been hit tremendously hard by COVID-19. All their, all their elders are dying off. It's because they haven't assimilated according to mm-hmm. the American practices. Yeah, and nobody gives a damn about them, too. Uh, because, oh, well, they wanted to be their own independent nation. Yeah, but we won't let them be their own independent nation. So they're, 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 they're secondary citizens. They're in that limbo zone that we put the Puerto Ricans in. But they were the people of D.C. But or they, the people of D.C. That's they got exactly. their own. They got their own state. Well, they got now. it worse than the people in D.C. because they can't even own land. Their no, own land. I read an article today that D.C. is finally going to get statehood. They're going to apply for it. That's what I heard. That's, They've done that before. Yeah, I think Puerto Rico needs to do it too. All of America's colonies. Yes. So territories. Anyway, territories. So, so, the, so yeah. The point. The point I brought up to Grandma Mincy is that this is this is something she should think about doing. And they had, fortunately, they did start doing that when they built the Smithsonian for Native American mm-hmm. history. There's an oral history program there that records the elders telling these stories. And Which is like very, that. very There's impressive. A, I, yes. would, oh, I would I recommend that it. That's probably my favorite out of all the museums up there. And I don't, I don't know the total background, but we mm-hmm. know about the WPA records. Uh, well, I'm is, talking about uh, during the Depression, to create jobs, they had going around interviewing former slaves when they were still alive. What is the WPA? In, uh, what's that? What is the WPA? Uh, something else. Oh, one of those alphabet soup things for the... Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's at the time, you had the WPA, the CCC. They're creating all these jobs, and one of the jobs they created was they go around and interview, get the history on that. Mm which is uh, you can actually listen to some of them, and they have the texts on some of them. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's fascinating. So one of the things out there on the res, when I was out there, there's a, 
a monastery out there. I think I want to say they're Franciscan. I could be wrong. Don't quote me. They may be Benedict Benedictine. I want to say they were Franciscan though. But there's a monastery that's been what out there. What did they wear? Huh? What did they wear? Brown robes. So I think Franciscan. they're Franciscan. Um, Brown and plain Franciscan. Yeah. So, and that this is near uh, Window Rock, the capital of the Navajo Nation, and. Uh, these priests, and that, that, that mission's been there, that monastery's been there since the mid-1800s, I want to say, but they have kept genealogical records of all the Navajo clans and families. All all these records, like dating back to who married who and things like that. It's basically a genealogical record. It's kept in filing cabinets in their basement. And I'm like, <laughs> somebody needs to go out there and digitize this stuff because all it's going to take is one flood, which would be unlikely out there, or one fire, which fire. is more likely, uh, because of the res. Uh, the res has no building codes. You you understand that when you go out there. Um, but somebody needs to digitize that. And I was thinking maybe I need to do it. I bet you I could get a grant from somewhere to go out there and digitize all this stuff. But they have all these records, and then once they go, they're gone. Um, you know, so. It, to me, there's a lot of work to be done, and I and I appreciate the fact, Rusty, that you're doing Native American history. We did not have a Native American historian on staff when I went through the program, or I would have done a comp field in Native American history, because that was something I was very interested in. If you ever if you ever go to my mom's house, uh, you'll see there's Native American stuff everywhere because my family always loved Native American history and culture. It's not too late. You can do a postdoctoral. Well, no, I'm thinking, or just do it my own little comp field. Right, get a book list from. Oh, the, we can we the, can give you that. <laughs> well, and go to the specific his professor that you work with for that comp field. He could probably help me out in it. Because oh yeah, it's the same. He's book, a very kind. It's the same man. book list we'll give you. <laughs> yeah, or, or just take questions to him and ask him these things. So, anyways, um, time flies when you're having fun. Sorry. Uh, I, uh, what time I was just, I was just looking at the time. No, we're we're on about a, an hour and twenty minutes, but we have enough time to do Earhart's comp fields if you want to talk about what you're doing okay we, we 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 lowly immigrants are given the time to talk i i, I humbly accept this was graciously gifted mute your time. mic here in a second <laughs> mute away oh great muter we'll need to see your credentials before you yes 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 make <laughs> make sure i'm not part of the african dust came over illegally no i'm um working of course in cartography and well african cartography in the early 15th century, and then also history of Africa, colonial and imperial history. I did a comp field in American history, because I'm here in America, and I plan to teach in America. And it's a requirement that all PhDs who work at the university level in America teach the survey courses of American history, and I thought yep. that would be a good, a good skill to have. And it's also sellable in, internationally, as America is an empire, and people would like to know about the history of the empire. Sort of like Rome, you know, in the ancient world. And um, the last field that I'm doing is a South American Southwestern history and borderlands history. It's not just borderlands history of, you know, America itself, but also border regions. You can look at border regions between France and Spain, North America and Canada, you know, places like, like, like that. That's the main focuses that I kind of look at. And I think the most fascinating one really was um, the field on the early cartography of Africa and then colonial Africa. Well, since I'm from there, might be a bit of a jib, but I think it's very important to teach people about that time period within 
global history and also African history because there are so many misconceptions about that time period and things that are simply not true but are accepted as fact within the historical community and not, and well, the non-historical community as well. So those are kind of the three major fields that I was that I was looking at. Um, very interesting book that I can plug in, um, although it's not not an easy book to find. Is um, the Burden of Empire, mm. which I know you you read and I think it's behind and, you there and enjoy it. Might be behind me here, but um, definitely if you can find an online version, it's well worth worth reading. I mean, with the entire argument is that. Um, the creation of the British Empire within Africa was so expensive and so burdensome that eventually it would have collapsed in and of itself. Although the British tried everything in their power to maintain it, it was simply not viable, and they didn't realize it until too late. Mm. That's kind of a quick overview of the type of comp fields that I, I was looking into. And we should do a, in another episode, we should just kind of go... And and you as listeners can tell us if you want to hear this, You can we can do a whole... A whole episode based on your your one comp field or whatever topic you may want to hear from Rusty Earhart or myself. So, um, you know, again, contact us. Tell us what you'd like to hear from us as discussing these topics. If you want to hear about colonial Africa or uh, the British Empire or Native American history uh, or my comp fields, which I've already, you know, passed them. Uh, can you remember them? I can, partially. <laughs> <laughs> it was four years ago. My my three fields that I was proficient in was uh, one was a methodological methodology can't talk this morning a methodology which was intercultural transfer. Well, that's not a real comp field. Uh huh. <laughs> There's the study intercultural transfer history, which was which is studies how cultures share ideas and phenomena and just culture with each other, um, like music, food. Uh, in my case, this or applied... venereal diseases. Or venereal diseases. In my case, uh, with Kellogg, I studied how uh, health reform movements were transferred from one culture to another between Europe and America. And so that was one of the fields I chose. The other field was... Uh, I can't remember the actual title of it, but it was basically Relics and Pilgrimage in Medieval Europe. And that was with our medievalist from Oxford. And that was basically studying how basically studying what relics were, holy relics, and how pilgrimage was centered around the acquisition of these relics and how people would, not not just acquisition, but also just to go to see them. People think about, say, the great pilgrimage road of uh, Santiago de Compostela, which goes from the Pyrenees Mountains where Spain and France meet all the way, it's like a, I forgot how many miles it is, like a 300 mile? No, maybe less than that. No, it's like 200 and something kilometers. Yeah. So... People would walk this trail by foot, or they'd go on the pilgrimage trail to Rome, or to Canterbury, or to even Jerusalem. Why would people make these journeys, which they're probably in the medieval age going to, to die? Pay on. taxes. You pay taxes. Well, <laughs> um, you know why? And whole systems like the Templars, their whole their whole system was set up to protect the pilgrims on the road to Jerusalem, uh, among other things. And without getting into the conspiracy theories on that one, because I hate them, but they're fascinating. But I don't like them. But so I, that was one of those fields. And then the last field, which was, I won't say it was my favorite, but it was, I really enjoyed it, which was uh, honor and violence in Renaissance and early modern Europe. And actually, we took it all the way to modern times. That we kind of that was the title of the comp field. And then my professor said, I'll ah, just take it all the way. And we never covered it even in the comp field. He just wanted me to read the books. But basically, that was a study, and I really enjoyed this, how 
the concept of honor in society and how for most of our history the concept of honor has to be defended or backed up with acts of violence violence and if i had to plug a book it's actually right here in front of me i forgot i put it on the desk it, it was planted it was planted right well i know i brought this out during the week and i said i need to bring this up and here it is uh, the book that I say I would say was very there was also there's Mad Blood Stirring which is an excellent book about the how violence was used and the concept of violence, but then the War of the Fists by Robert C Davis uh, that book or this book here in front of me was just it really was eye opening about about um we we've talked before about the we state have. having a monopoly on violence. Yes. And the the idea of the social contract, we as citizens give up the right to enact violence ourselves and give it to the state. That's the concept of the police, right? The police have the monopoly on violence because we the citizens have given them the authority to have to have that monopoly. That's the that's the the gist of the it. The gist of it, right? So this talks about Renaissance Venice and I'm trying to think of how to to put this as succinctly as possible. Use Ven- those historians' skills that you learned. Right. In Venice, you had factions that revolved around clan families, right? Just like you did in Rome or in Florence. In Florence, you had like the Medici and the Pazzi and other families like that. In Rome, you had the Colonna, the Orsini, and the Borgia, the Col- uh, Piccolomine, Piccolomine, things like that. So you had these families that formed clans, and they would fight with each other constantly. Were the Borgias in Venice? No, they were not. But you had other families that were in <laughs> Venice, and they controlled, and Venice, as m- most many of you may know, is on the water and separated by canals, and these they have these, what they, they call their, they're basically neighborhoods, but they're their own little islands surrounded by canals. And the only way honor off these islands, if it's not by boat, is by bridges that connect all the islands together. And these clans would rule, would occupy the bridges, and they could charge fees for entering into their neighborhood or doing business in their neighborhood, or they could keep certain people out. I hate to do this, but think think about it in terms of Chaz. Within or the within urge. the government of Venice, within the within the city of Venice, which is ruled by a central government, you had individual neighborhoods that were ruled by these clan families, and they could tell they could keep people from entering. Or they and they could allow people to enter. That was just like in Chaz, an autonomous zone, if you will. But they still would pay taxes to the central government and would recognize the central government's authority. Well, or the, here's the, or the states within America. I was about to yeah. use that analogy. Yeah, or the states within America. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This that's actually a very apt analogy. Like the states in America, so they have little control over their little neighborhood. Well, the problem was is that these clans kept fighting with each other, right? And Imagine that. Hmm. And didn't certain states in this country's history also fight each mm-hmm. other? Yeah, factionalism. Hey. So that's what this is about: is is about the use of public violence. But it, basically, it kind of also goes into the history of specta- spectator, spect, uh, spectacle, and spectator uh, sport. Yeah, spectator sport, because that's what it turned into. So they would fight on these bridges because the bridges were the borders between these neighborhoods. And Venice was going, well, this is bad for business because it's interrupting the flow of commerce and things like that when they have these little wars. So basically, the book is about how Venice approached these clan members and said, we're going to basically, what's the word I'm looking for? Regulate? Thank you. (laughs) Yes, we're going to regulate your violence. You're only going to be allowed to fight on certain bridges that we tell you on certain dates and at certain times. And the clan members agreed to this. The families agreed to this. 
And so Venice would have these basically arranged spectacles where the members of certain um, factions would gather on a bridge. They were not allowed to carry swords or knives at that point because they didn't really want people getting killed by the blade. But they were allowed to carry uh, cudgels, canes, sticks, stones, things like that, or use their fists, hence the War of the Fists. And then at the commencement of it, they just start proceeding to beat the crap out of each other. And if you were thrown off the bridge, it was considered a KO, and you got out of the water, and they made you sit over here in the penalty box, basically. <laughs> but because and Venice had arranged an entire spectator sport around this, because they would announce when it was going to happen, and people would sit and watch it, because it was sport. Kind of like watching modern-day boxing or MMA fighting. So, I mean... So could we say that honor begets violence? Well, that was the whole question. Well, that was the whole question of the comp field. Does mm. honor cause violence, or did, does, did honor come out of the? Or does violence cause honor? Yeah, exactly. So, what is the succinct version of that book? The succinct version of the book is the fact that Venice created a police state to control the violence of factions for the good of the commerce of the overall uh, city-state of Venice. See, I can do it. Oh. Mm. Uh, but, but see, you can say things like that, and then people want to know more, and it's like, well, here's the gist of it. That's why you plug the book. They have to, they have to go buy it. That's true. Oh, no, there's a lot more in here that you just need to... It's hysterical when they when they describe some of these fights. I mean, it's absolutely delightful. Um, because this historian has a very good way of, of writing it, and so it's It's just, the same when, when, when I look at primary documents from the Anglo-Zulu War in uh, things that people wrote in dispatches or letters or in newspapers. It's just hysterical the way they they put things, either being completely non non nonchalant or being derogatory towards the Irish. Mm-hmm. Hey, something else. Do you have that quote handy? Sorry, I'm, I'm, you've said it before. Was it oh, Chomsford wrote about the Irish? This is Lord, like Lord Chomsford, the commander of the um, British forces, and he was chastising one of his, his, his commanders for doing a foolish action. And, and, and I remember he, he, his writing in his letter to this commander, he said, you have, you've rather imitated the Irishman by cutting off the bottom half of your sheet to sew to the top in the hope of lengthening it. <laughs> I don't know, can, you, can, can you possibly imagine? You know, half of his force was made up of people from Ireland, and this is kind of his opinion of them. Only a British man could come up with an analogy like that. You were about to say, Rusty. Sorry. Hey, one thing, just real quick, and this this is for the listeners. Some of the books we talk about, you don't have to buy. If you do your homework on the computer, you will find a copy of some of them. Not all of them, obviously, but there are books. I found the PDFs on the entire book, mm-hmm. and you can read it right there, and it costs you nothing. You can also get it from a library. Yep. If those are left. Yeah. Right outside of a outside of a university institution, even the universities themselves are starting to well try and do away with libraries in some instances. Trying to go online with everything. Yeah, and it's like yeah, we don't have that many books digitized yet. It's it's digitizing books, and I have a problem with digitizing books, and that's another topic for another day. But I have a problem with digitizing books because if something happens to electricity or something like that, uh, there are no more books. That's why it's in the cloud. Yeah, and then what happens is the cloud goes down. If civilization were to then completely fall... Then it is in fall, the super cloud. Yeah, if, if civilization were to completely fall and we had no access to these digital to these digital books... That's in July. How would you... <laughs> it's going to be much harder to rebuild I'm society. I'm here in August. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was going to say August, I think, is when it was supposed to happen. Everybody's going to start getting evicted out of their rental properties. Or die of COVID. That too. Anyways, Ooh. so that's... 
that's that's the comp fields, gentlemen. Uh, yeah, sort of a quick and dirty discussion. Yeah. But if if our listeners have any other specific questions, please send them in. We're happy to talk more about those things, about subjects, topics, how it works, how the exam works, how the oral exam mm-hmm. take take place. Please, we're the floor is open. Yeah, and. You know, that, so those are the three to- three topics that we're proficient in, but then that's not including the dissertation. Yeah. And we become experts in the topic of the dissertation. So, I, and that opens up a whole other field. So, like in my dissertation, I did you know the history of vegetarianism, religion, and and health, uh, and succinctness. Yeah. Right. And succinctness. Um, <laughs> yes, sex sex reform, which actually went down to um, uh, Kellogg's goal to stop masturbation society we could do a whole we could do a whole podcast on that where y'all want to ask questions about that um to put it mildly and i'd like to put this out there for those of you and this may be untoward for some of you but um we get onto africa for uh, female circumcision i would like to point out that we were circumcising females in this country until the 1950s just going to point that out uh, and then i did also uh, light therapy and eugenics and so technically, whatever you did in your dissertation, you're an expert on. So now I, you know, I feel comfortable teaching a class in eugenics and I feel comfortable teaching a class in light therapy, health reform and all the things that I did for my dissertation as well. So it's not just those three things in your comp fields, plus the overall topic of your dissertation. There's huge amounts of data you have to intake for your dissertation. So you become proficient in, the, in those areas as well. So... This is what we do. This is how if you and I think the average. Let's talk about time frame for those people who may be thinking about doing a PhD in history. I think from beginning to end, I started in two thousand thirteen. Make sure you, when beginning to end, you're talking graduate school forward. Not yeah, from coursework from the beginning of coursework to the end of the dissertation was seven years. Yeah. That's did, about right. Did you get the wife you wanted after that seven years? Or did you get a different one? And had to work another seven years. I actually got married 2015. Mm. So that would be uh, in midway. I got married right before comps. And oh, everybody okay. told me I was yeah. crazy for doing that right before comps because I'd have yeah. to ignore her <laughs> while I studied. Stress of um, stress. Oh, yeah. <laughs> stress relief, rather. No. Um, that's so, not, that's so not what your wife says. Right. <laughs> Put the gun away. Man. <laughs> Rest of let me borrow that real quick. No. Um... So, what was it I asked? I said, how many guns do you think are in this room right now, plus the katana behind me? No, um... Too many. Right? Or so, too few. Right. So, seven. So that's seven years. The average, I believe, the national average for finishing the dissertation alone, the national average is eight years. And that's across all disciplines, if I recall. That's the average. Mm-hmm. That's not the program. That's just the dissertation portion, I believe. Yeah. Um, I believe in our program, it used to be after comps, you had four years to finish your dissertation. You can apply for extensions, but I mean, four years, they want you, they want you to finish, finish it in four, in four years. years. Yeah. And in all honesty, there's no reason why you shouldn't finish in four years. Uh, so I would have been finished sooner, except I had to do that work there at the, in the Vatican archives. So I had to kind of take a break and go and solve an issue that a historical issue that was there. And that's the other thing, too, is that the studying, we don't just sit around and read these things out of books and computers. We have to go to the archives and read the primary sources we were talking about at the beginning of this episode, right? I mean, the primary sources, the documents that we read off of, that we interpret, a lot of these, some of these are online, 
but a lot of them you have to go to where they are physically kept in an archive. Um, the National Archive and the archives of, say, Britain, things like that. Uh, in my case, you know, I went to the Vatican Secret Archives to look through stuff there. To look at secrets? Yeah, to look through the secrets. There are no secrets. <laughs> There's all the secrets are in North Korea. That's true. Well, and, and say that the, in one of our favorite professors up there at the university, he went to the Moscow Archives oh, in the Kremlin, yes. right? And those are about as hard to get into as the Vatican Secret Archives as well. So, I mean, that, so, but we have to travel the world and look for some of these sources. And usually the older the sources are, the more likely you have to visit. Like if you're going to do like, a, say, colonial Spain, yes, you have to go to Seville. There's no getting around that. They don't digitize those things. Seville or Madrid. Uh, and or Mexico City. Or Mexico City. You have to go because they're not digitizing these no. things. With Kellogg, my, my sources were about 18... 1850s onward, and so a lot of it was on typewriter paper and stuff like that. They digitized that whole collection and put it online. What's that book you like so much about Kellogg and his brother? Uh, the Kellogg's, The Battling Brothers of Battle Creek okay. by Howard Markle. Are you plugging that who, by book? The way, are you... Who, by the way, has been interviewed in countless, uh, in countless news stories with the COVID thing going on because he actually is a very good historian of pandemics. Okay. He's an excellent historian about pandemics. Uh, I just kind of tore him apart on his Kellogg book because I think he was dead wrong on a few things. Uh, if he ever listens to this podcast, uh, Howard, we can have a discussion about that if you'd like. Uh, because this man in his a chapter... A succinct discussion, I hope. A succinct discussion. You, that's your way of telling me to wrap it up, right? Don't be long-winded. Yeah. My wife does that to me, Earhart. I don't need another. <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought it was stress relief. Uh -huh. In in his in that book, he does a chapter on eugenics, which is kind of out of place because he's supposed to be talking about the dynamics between the two brothers, John Harvey and Will Keith. And he does an entire chapter on Kellogg and his foray into eugenics, which I do too in my dissertation. And he's dead wrong on several things in that chapter, but especially at the end of it when he says that eugenics is dead and gone and hopefully will never return to society. And I'm kind of like... All you need to do is read... I got a whole bunch of books over here on the eugenic movement. All you need to do is just read one or two of them, and you understand that the eugenic movement never died. It just changed its its terms. Changed its form. Yeah, people it, it changed people forms. People haven't internalized it. Yeah. In, in conversation, oh, you shouldn't marry this person because they might have some genetic traits that you don't want your children well, there's, to have. Well, there's an assumption that, that the eugenics movement was a, a Nazi thing, and when we crushed the Nazis in World War II... Uh, that was the end of it, kind of right. The the Nazi the Nazi euthanization of an extermination of undesirables, whether it be Jews, uh, those with uh, certain handicaps, and uh, Slavs and Gypsies, the undesirables of society. The idea was is, is once we defeated the Nazis, that idea of eugenics was gone because they're the ones that invented it. Not so. Uh, America is the one that. So the idea of eugenics was invented by Francis Galton, who was the cousin of Charles Darwin. And that was in Britain where he invented this idea of the eugenics of breeding a better humanity. And it spread to America, and America took off with it. And we sterilize people in this country, and people don't know that. And is it, would anyone like to take a guess, the state that sterilized the most people in America? I bet it's a sunny state. Most states... 
almost all states in America had had eugenics programs where they were sterilizing people so that they couldn't pass on their quote unquote bad traits to the next generation. Would anyone like to take a guess what state? California? I know. So I don't have to guess. But... California, very good. Recipe. And specifically, mm-hmm. what group? I'd have to I'd have to go back and look at the evidence for you, but basically, uh, people. So with the sterilization programs, it was people with low mental capacity as, as the state judged it, and that's a very dubious in of itself. Because the native, and the only reason I bring that up is because Native Americans yes. suffered from that very thing. Yeah, and they didn't even know it. Yes. In the 1970s, this was going on even in yep. the 1970s, and it's just now coming out, and I remember reading these articles when I was yep. writing it. 1970s, doctors would say, oh, your, your appendix needs to come out, which... It, oftentimes it probably did, but at the same time they were removing the appendix, the doctors decided to remove the woman's ovaries. These women try to have children later on. This happened to them when they were kids, and then they, these women try to have children in the 1980s, 1990s, and they go, why can't I Why can't I have children? And it devastates them, and then they go to the doctor, and the doctor goes, you don't have any ovaries. Why did you have your ovaries removed? And they're like, we didn't. And they find out that these old school doctors, and one of them was still alive, and they were trying to charge him, but I think he died recently. Um, but he basically said, well, you know, I looked at, he, I don't know when he was born, but he was an old fart. And he just, he's going, like, well, I looked around me and I saw all this poverty, all this drug abuse, all this alcohol abuse. And, you know, I didn't want that being passed down for the good of these people. So, you know, I, I decided to make the decision to take away their ability to reproduce that. And it's like. The American Mengele. It's, yeah, right? It's like, so you didn't want the traits passed on. What you're really saying is you didn't want the people passed on. Yes. Because the people are the ones committing these traits. Because and the traits like, and the people have been have been exactly. weirdly, um, I would say, drawn drawn together in a false analogy. Lumped together. And we should do topical episodes where we discuss eugenics, colonization, yeah. and, and, and you as listeners tell us which ones you'd like to hear about, and we can discuss these things, because eugenics is a whole other episode. So, um, but yeah, that's like, that was a huge part of, so when, when Markle said that in that book and Earhart got me off on, started off on this because he mentioned it, uh, it just really got to me because I'm kind of like, how can you say it's dead and gone? When I was writing the dissertation and I included this in my, in it, an article had just come out. I can't remember if it was Los Angeles times or one of them had mentioned an article where, uh, women in a state penitentiary in California, go figure, mm-hmm. had been sterilized without, against their will and without their knowledge by the prison doctor. I forgot how many, like 20-something of them had been sterilized by this doctor. And this just happened in the last 10 years. Most of these doctors doing this are government mm-hmm. employees, if you will. Yeah. Do I smell a conspiracy theory? But there's, mm. but but here's the thing: the eugenic trend, and, and I don't want to get too deep into it because I think we should do a whole episode on this topic, even because the, I and I ask people because when people don't understand what eugenics is, and I ask them, I said, truthfully, tell me, have you at one time in your life ever met a person where you look at them and go, oh God, you shouldn't have kids? I do every Sunday. Right. <laughs> or, or uh, oh God, I just now got that. <laughs> slow Sunday, is it? <laughs> it is a slow Sunday. Every su- Oh, man. So, but, or you look at them and go, oh, man, you shouldn't be allowed to breed, or you shouldn't be allowed to vote, or Reproduce. you shouldn't be allowed to, to drive. <laughs> you shouldn't be allowed. Yep. You shouldn't be allowed to do X, Y, and Z. I said, if you've ever had those thoughts, especially have children, that is the same mentality of people who who 
enacted the eugenic movement. And so don't try and tell me it's dead and gone because this is something that's deeply ingrained in humanity that there are some people, in their opinion, that should not have children. And so for him to say in that book that the eugenic movement was dead and gone and hopefully will never return is just like, I think I said, naive at best. Um, Perhaps not in the shape and form it took during Kellogg's era, but... I think it will come back. Okay. I think, and I think in the world we already have it in certain countries still, where it never went away. Um, but I think before the, I think that what you're seeing with designer babies and things like that, I think you will see, um, and with the th- way things are going, you may see laws enacted that say that pe- certain people can't reproduce. Reproduce. Let's use that term. Breed. Breed. Yeah. No, you can I mean, breed, but you're going to reproduce. Yeah. Semantics. I'm gonna really. have to. I'm gonna have to. Anyways, <laughs> tomato, tomato. So a lot of things you have so to edit yeah, out. To, I'm not gonna edit anything out. People are gonna know <laughs> us for who we truly are. Oh, um, yeah, warts so and all. Huh? We're we're at the end of our time, gentlemen. Time does fly. So I know um, we need to. Any final thoughts? No, that's about it. I, I look forward. I look forward to the next one. And yep. you, you know, we'll, like I said, we'll get back to current events in another episode. But right now, we we're I think we're all tired of it. Yep. And uh, yep. Time to move on to better things. Yep. So we will see you all next week, gentlemen. Cheers. Cheers out here.